Most people I have discovered in life live for dreams. It's really a quest. They sort of cling to ideas or ideals, might be a better way to say it, sort of like a carrot on a stick. You know, the carrot on the stick, the, the goal of the carrot on the stick is to just put it in front of the mule to get, to get the mule going. The mule never gets there, but the mule is the mule, so he doesn't know, and so he keeps going. And that's sort of what people, when they chase ideals or dreams in life, that's sort of what it's like. It keeps them going, but they never get it. They never get the carrot, and they never get their dream. And in a way, I think we all can sort of fall for this lie that it's just right there. If, if I can just get through this week, or if I can just get this promotion, or if we can just get this house, or if we just go to this church, or if, 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 and then marketing, of course, takes over with that as well. If you just have this product, or if you just get this study Bible, then all of, the, all of your answers, all, all of your problems are going to be answered. You know, anybody who searches for the ideal life only needs to go to the Garden of Eden to see that it's futile. The Garden of Eden, think about it. Adam and Eve had an unspoiled, perfect environment. They lived in paradise, literally in paradise. They, uh, they had the perfect spouse, they had uh, the perfect vocation. They had plenty of food. They didn't even have to spend 30 minutes standing in their closet every day wondering what to wear. <laughs> There's a lot I'm not saying right now. <laughs> a whole lot. <laughs> they lived without a care in the world. But here's the thing, it wasn't enough. Isn't that crazy? You think about it? Adam and Eve lived in paradise, but it wasn't enough. Because deep within them, they also had the possibility of discontent. And that possibility, it wasn't sin. But the, but the fact that they had a possibility of discontent within them meant that they couldn't live just in paradise, that paradise wasn't all they needed. They needed more than that. Because they could sin, not because they had, but because they could, it meant that their worship of God came from their decisions, not from their reflexes. They weren't robots. They weren't programmed to just, yes, Lord. They were given a will. And they were given a choice. And of course we know temptation lured them into making the wrong choice. But I say all that to say that finding God's will in your life doesn't mean that you're going to find utopia. Searching for the will of God. Lord, if I could just be in the center of your will, all things would be, would be right. Well, was Jesus ever not in the center of God's will? And yet we look at the life of Christ, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, ultimately crucified, rejected by everybody that he came into contact with, misunderstood, misrepresented, and yet right in the center of God's will. So Adam and Eve show us, in a sense, and even Christ shows us, that 
seeking the will of God and being in the will of God is not necessarily a, uh, a ticket to ride. It's not necessarily uh, you've arrived and now it's all just peaches. The theme of most movies, especially most Disney movies, I've noticed with kids, is follow your heart. You know, that's sort of the takeaway from it. Just follow your heart. The, uh, just look within yourself, see who you are, and be that person. I remember a stand-up comedy routine that a, a comic, whose name you would know, uh, said something. He said it, that being who you are just sort of accentuates your personality. And he said, why would I want to do that? What if you're a jerk? He didn't use the word jerk, but that gets the point across. Look within yourself and see who you are and be that person. Yeah, well, what if you're a jerk? Don't follow your heart if that's, if that's who you are. You know, as Christians, we tend to baptize this a little bit. We'll say, you know, I just want to find the will of God, and so we'll, we'll go with our feelings. We'll say, you know, I don't feel like this is the will of the Lord. Or, uh, I don't have a peace about this. I don't sense God's leading in this particular circumstance. And what we're really saying is, I'm led by my feelings. Here's how I feel about it. And I'm baptizing it with all these spiritual words. Our feelings are real, but we have to remember they may not represent reality. Just because you feel it and your feelings are real, that doesn't mean it's reality. You could be basing your feelings on something that's totally wrong. Even if, we, even if we, what we feel does have some connection with reality, it never reflects all of reality. So here's the point of this long introduction. When our Father, when our Father God spun the earth into orbit millennia ago, he knew that we would need something to lead us through the deceptions of Satan and even the maze of our own emotions. He gave us something. And what he gave us was obedience. Obedience. If you want to, to chase the ideal life, the best possible life that you can find, in whatever circumstances, because remember the circumstances don't matter. Adam and Eve had it. The best possible life you can have is a life that chooses obedience. Turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And we'll continue in our series here on this gospel of Mark. So far, Jesus has come, has offered the kingdom of God to Israel, the long-awaited kingdom, and in doing so, he's validated that he can produce that kingdom uh, by performing miracles. The miracles have shown that he actually can make good on his offer to give the kingdom to Israel. But there was a catch. You don't just get the kingdom, you've got to repent. The Old Testament didn't just promise the kingdom, but promised the kingdom to Israel when they repented. Deuteronomy 27 through 30 talked about the blessings that come through repentance. And if there was no repentance, there would be no kingdom. John the Baptist said that. Jesus said that, and he, Jesus began to recognize that the leaders are going to reject him. These miracles that Jesus was doing, they didn't attribute to the Spirit of God, they attributed it to Satan. 
His family thought he was crazy. His disciples misunderstood him. His hometown rejected him. And so Jesus less and less began to do miracles that validated his offer of the kingdom. He began to withdraw that. And now more and more he begins to focus on training these 12 men, these 12 disciples, for something they didn't know to be prepared for, and that was the age of the church. He's preparing them for leadership in an era that they didn't even know was coming. Part of that preparation we saw last week as we began Mark chapter 8 was he took Jesus, Jesus took his disciples to Bethsaida and healed a blind man in stages. Remember that? Healed him in stages, touched him. Do you see anything? Well, it's kind of fuzzy. Touched him again. Now he can see clearly. And then Jesus takes his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi and does basically the same thing to them, not in the sense of a miracle, not in the sense of sight, but in the sense of insight. Who do the people say that I am? Well, the people say you're basically just a man. Who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ. Jesus says, you're exactly right. Now, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. Why not? Because their sight of Jesus was fuzzy, like that man who had been healed in stages. Jesus takes them up north to Caesarea Philippi to put his hands on them again and to clear the fog and to say, the Messiah is not just the king who reigns. The Messiah is also one who's going to die. Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Lord, this is never going to happen to you. I've read the Old Testament. This is not something that's supposed to happen to you. And so now Mark 8, look in verse 33. Let's pick up right where we left off last time. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Have you ever been to an auction, a real live auction? I don't mean those ones you see on TV. I mean an auction where you're sitting there and there's a guy up front, you know, going talking faster than your mother-in-law ever talked. I don't know, you know. I thought about why do they do that? And the, I think they do it for the same reason that the, the hecklers at baseball games do it to guys that are trying to swing the bat. Hey, better, better, better. It's, it's a distraction from you actually thinking about what you're doing. The auctioneer rattles off, you know, all this stuff to try to get you not to think about it so that you'll just buy, to create urgent, a sense of urgency. Kathy and I went to an auction, actually we've been quite a few times up in Sanger. They had an auction for years up there that we'd go to. It was fun. They had a lot of antiques, and we'd, we'd just go because we enjoyed looking at the antiques. One time we went there and, and bought a great mirror for just 35 bucks. It was a really nice mirror. We still have it. Um, but there was an, another time we went, and they had a desk that we really liked. And so we go in, and we decide, okay, here's what we're going to spend, or, or here's our limit you know, to what we're going to spend. And I don't remember what it was, maybe $100, $150, something like that. But this was a desk that was really nice. And so the auction begins, and it's, you know, 50 75 100 and it's like getting close to our limit. And they hit our limit, you know, and so the whole time we're – 
we're raising our hand and, and bidding on it, and then they go past our limit. And Kathy and I just kind of look at each other like, well, we're done. And so we just sat there, and somebody else got our desk. <laughs> but I'll tell you, an auction is not the place to scratch your nose at the wrong time. <laughs> or to swat flies, you know. 100, 200, 300, sold! But I thought about that in relation to the spiritual life because a lot of times we can be tempted to enter the Christian life like we enter an auction. And we go in knowing, here's my limit. And if that guy up front tries to take me beyond what I'm willing to pay, I'm out. I'm not participating anymore. We know what we're willing to pay, and if Jesus demands from us something more than we want to give... We no longer walk with him. Jesus commands us to have a commitment, the same commitment that he had, and that is a life of unconditional loyalty where the price is unknown. He said these words in, the, in these verses we just read, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. This is speaking to your will. Let him deny himself. This is speaking to your will. In the context that we've seen from last week, we know that Peter's passion was Peter. It was himself. Or as Jesus put it, you're setting your mind on man's interests, not God's. Peter's passion was to follow his own heart, to follow his desires, to find the, the life of utopia. And from Peter's perspective, that did not include Jesus dying. Jesus says this isn't going to be the way it is. If you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. What does that mean? Biblical self-denial doesn't mean that you deny yourself something as much as it means you deny self. In other words, it doesn't mean that you just decide, you know what, I'm not going to have that third slice of pecan pie. second one was fine. But the third one, you know, I'm going I'm to deny myself. It's not that you're denying yourself something, like you give something up for Lent when you fully intend to come right back to it. Biblical self-denial means you're denying self. It is a lifestyle of putting God ahead of yourself. So that whenever these two wills, your will and God's will, are running in parallel, and if there is ever a moment that your will gets off track, denying self means you pull it right back in. This doesn't ta isn't talking about pecan pie. This is talking about every single decision that you make in life. In a word, it's submission. Let him deny himself. This is speaking of your will. And, Jesus said, take up his cross. Let him deny himself and take up his cross. This it's not speaking of your will, this is speaking of your actions. And the will comes first. If you've determined that no matter what happens, you're running parallel with God, no matter what happens, then your actions are going to follow what your will. If you have determined to, take up your, to, to deny yourself, then taking up your cross is a very natural reaction if that's what God desires of you. As it was with Christ, so it is with us. Jesus took up his cross and we take up our cross. I remember Dr. Toussaint often sharing that he had a uh, uh, someone in one of his congregations 
a man, I think, who said, you know, my wife is my cross. I always got a kick out of Dr. T. Saint sharing that because he would say, you know, she really isn't. He basically said, your, your cross is the situation that you find yourself in up against your will. The circumstances are irrelevant, like we saw with Adam and Eve in the garden. You can have perfect circumstances and still sin. Adam and Eve show us that. Or you can have difficult circumstances and stay faithful. Jesus showed us that. To deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, Christ said. Follow me. If denying self is your will, if taking up your cross is your actions, following me is your purpose. Remember Jesus said up front with, to his apostles, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will change your purpose in life. You're no longer going to be fishing for fish. You're no longer going to be typing simply at a computer. You're no longer going to simply be raising children. I will teach you to fish for men. I will give you a purpose that is so far higher and more eternal than simply in this life. Your purpose, Jesus wants to change. It's not living for money. It's not living for pleasure. It's not living for admiration. It's living for Christ. Now, for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, what he's talking about here, follow me, anyone who will follow me, for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, you know, we pretty much got heaven in the bag. Heaven, that's guaranteed. But now we've got choices how we're going to live our life. Why would we want to follow Jesus and make these difficult decisions of our will, of our actions, of our purpose, denying ourselves like this? Why in the world would we want to do that? That's tough. Jesus gives us a few really good reasons, starting in verse 35. He says, for, in other words, he's explaining, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Look at verse 35 again where it says, whoever loses his life. You have, should have in the margin there the word for life. It says, or soul. And then in verse 36, you see it says, uh, forfeit his soul. Those are actually the two identical words. I'm sort of surprised that they translated them differently in these two different verses, in, at least in the New American Standard they did. But uh, it's the same word, and it's the Greek word suke. We get our word psyche from it. it, it they translated these two different ways because it really means a couple of, it could mean a couple of different things. It could mean your life. It could mean your soul. Your life meaning your existence here and now, your soul, it could obviously is the immaterial part of you that lives forever. It sort of relates to the Old Testament or the Hebrew word in the, in the Old Testament, used very often in the Old Testament, uh, nefesh. Nefesh means often translated soul, but it means more than just your, the immaterial part of you. It means all of you, the physical, the spiritual, the emotional, all of who you are is wrapped up in that word for soul or nephesh in the Old Testament. And I think Jesus has the same idea when he uses this word. And the translators, you can tell, struggled, which way do I render this? Well, let's just do both. 
35 and 36. It's not just your life and your eternal soul. It's all of you. So understanding that, whoever loses his life, whoever gives up all of himself or herself, notice, for my sake and the gospel's, will save it. You want to have a great life? The paradox is you got to give it up. You got to quit chasing the carrot on the stick. You got to realize that that's a lie that marketers and ultimately Satan all the way it's a lie all the way back from the garden of Eden. You got to give up chasing what you think is going to satisfy you to give you the good life. Jesus says you want the good life? Give up chasing it for yourself, lose it. And instead, live your life for my sake and the gospel's. If you want a life that is fulfilling and satisfying, devote it to Jesus Christ and devote it to the gospel. doesn't matter what your job is. That doesn't mean you, you quit whatever you're doing, leave retirement, leave your vocation, and get back in the ministry full-time. You're in the ministry full-time as a Christian. Uh, and so Jesus says, this is to be your passion. It's a paradox, isn't it? Notice he asks a couple of questions. He asks in verse, 30, uh, verse 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's kind of a rhetorical question because the obvious answer is, well, nothing. Why in the world would you want to profit, gain everything, and yet when life is over, it's all over? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Again, the answer, nothing. I saw an interview in Rolling Stone magazine with Brad Pitt. I sh actually, I should say I read about it. I don't read Rolling Stone magazine. But I heard about this. <laughs> I heard about this interview Brad Pitt, the actor, did with uh, the magazine. And in it, Pitt says this. I know all these things are supposed to seem important to us, the car, the condo, our version of success. The emphasis now is on success and personal gain. I'm sitting in it, and I'm telling you that's not it. I'm the guy who's got everything, but I'm telling you once you've got everything, then you're just left with yourself. Just left with yourself. Jesus asked, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Answer, nothing. And Jesus tells us now in verse 38 why it is why there is no profit in gaining the world because here's what happens at the end of it all verse 38 whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels now remember christ is not just speaking to his disciples here Back in verse 34, we see that he summoned the crowd. So he's talking to his disciples and the multitude, a mixed bag of faith. And Jesus is basically saying, look, to be ashamed of me in this sinful and adulterous generation is to be part of this adulterous and sinful generation. And when I come in my glory and when it's judgment time, it's not going to go well for you if you don't believe and accept me. But whoever does, uh, obviously, will be accepted by Christ when he comes in the glory of his, fathers, of his Father. So this text is going to give us 
this morning, I'd like to draw out two principles and one question. And two principles and one question. Here's the first principle. Christ gives us perspective. He talks about what's for now and what's for later. Here's the first principle. What's for now is a life that puts Christ's concerns ahead of self. When he talks about carrying your cross and denying yourself and following him, the principle we can pull from that is what's for now is a life that puts Christ's concerns ahead of self. Because if we could see life from God's perspective, we would realize that the obedient way is the best way. It doesn't always seem like that when, when the carrot on the stick seems so close, so easy to touch. But Jesus reminds us what's for now is not to be that. That joy comes from obedience, not from chasing what the world offers. We need to always ask ourselves when we come to a decision, what does the Bible say about this situation? What is the obedient way? When you're in a situation and you don't know what to do, what do you do? What do you do when you don't know what to do? Answer, ask yourself, what is the obedient way? That is what you do. That is what you do. And if it's not plain enough to you by reading the Word, then you seek some good godly counsel that will give you insight as to what do you do when you don't know what to do. What does the Bible say about this particular situation? And no matter what it is, don't, don't lead to the temptation of getting off track, but stay right there in the will of God and carry your cross. Jesus has shown them what's for now, and now he shows them what's for later. This is where it gets really good. Chapter 9. Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. Let's pause there for a second. A high mountain by themselves. Some translations or, or renderings, I, I haven't looked to see if it's a manuscript issue or if it was just a translation glitch, but some translate some interpreters have understood a high mountain by itself. And as a result, the tradition has uh, erroneously been attached to a mountain in Israel called Mount Tabor, which if you've been to Israel, you see Mount Tabor, it is by itself. The Jezreel Valley is large and flat, and then you got Mount Tabor, this beautiful mountain right in the middle. It is by itself. And as a result of that, if you go to the top of Mount Tabor today, you'll see the Church of the Transfiguration. It's always so kind of, I get such mixed feelings when I go to these places that, that uh, venerate these wonderful episodes in Jesus' life, but they're at the wrong place. <laughs> you know, like, if you're going to spend all this money, spend a little bit more and hire somebody to figure out where it really happened. <laughs> but anyway, it wasn't Mount Tabor. It wasn't a place by itself. The correct, better translation, as we've got it in the American Standard, is they brought, they brought him to a high mountain by themselves. In other words, he got them alone. And geography plays a great, gives us a great help in understanding which high mountain, we aren't told which high mountain it is. They were at Caesarea Philippi, which is right at the base of Mount Hermon. 
And so it makes sense. We can't say it absolutely. There's no way we can know for sure. But it makes sense that the high mountain was Mount Hermon. Is the, in fact, it is the highest mountain in Israel. And it's kind of neat. If you go to Mount Hermon, even in the summer, um, it has snow at the top of Mount Hermon, even in the summer. I have seen pictures of Orthodox Jews in their, in their black garb, snow skiing. Picture that on, on Mount Hermon. They have a ski lift up there. But think about the snow in context, if, if indeed that's where it happened. Think about the snow in context of what we're about to read. He takes them up, verse 2, to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. And then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. The text says that Jesus was transfigured. That's not a word we use a lot. In fact, outside of this story, I don't know we ever use it. We talk about something being transfigured or the transfiguration. We didn't, what does that mean, transfiguration? Well, it means this incident. Yeah, but what does the word mean, transfigured? The original word comes from two kind of a compound word, and we get our, our word metamorphosis from it. And it's basically very similar to what the Greek word is. Meta means to change. Morph, morphe, means form. And so to change form or to change appearance. And basically, when, uh, if you look up metamorphosis in Webster, it talks about a dramatic change of appearance. And the New, the new Living Translation just tosses transfiguration to the wind and just says, uh, the appearance of Jesus changed. How does it read? Uh, Jesus' appearance changed. He just tells us what it means. His, his appearance changed. And we're told it was an amazing change. That his clothes became so white, whiter than, than anything on earth can create. And if, and if they were on Mount Hermon, and if they did go up high enough to be actually in the snow, imagine that. White clothes, white surrounding, the glory of God just everywhere. It would have been an incredible experience. It was incredible regardless. So incredible that John and Peter would later include it in their epistles. And, and James couldn't because he was killed early on. But um, John wrote in 1 John, he said, The word became flesh and tabernacled with us, or dwelt with us. The, the original word there is used of a word that means the tabernacle. Dwelt with us. And it's like what the book of Hebrews says when Hebrews says that Jesus' flesh was like the veil of the temple that hid the true glory. Um, Peter would later also write in 2 Peter, he said, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were with him on the holy mountain. The holy mountain is the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus is there talking with Moses and Elijah, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. Right now in my Bible reading program, reading through the year, I'm reading... Uh, in Exodus, and Moses, you know, is in full gear and full uh, high gear. And Moses is a pretty big deal. 
And here he is talking with Jesus. Elijah was a really big deal. And here he is talking with Jesus, who also was a really big deal. But you have two incredible moments of, of um, oh, there's so much that's rich about just saying Moses, Elijah, and Jesus in the same sentence. They are, they are major points of transition in Israel's history. Moses, obviously, because of the Exodus. Elijah, because of preparing for the exile. And Jesus, preparing for the, uh, the, new, the new covenant. And even geographically. Um, boy, I'm going to go long, if, but I'll share a little bit. It, this is just so wonderful. When you think about where Moses entered the promised land, it was right across from Jericho. Well, Moses didn't enter the promised land, where Moses uh, left Israel, uh, left um, earth, and was ascended to heaven, or killed. Good grief, I just need to slow down. <laughs> I've got so much I'm trying to say, it's just all coming out wrong. Where Moses died was right across from Jericho. Where Elijah left this earth, left Israel, and ascended to heaven was right across from Jericho, and the Jordan River parted. When Moses handed the mantle to Joshua to enter the Holy Land, the Jordan River parted. When Elijah left, the Jordan River parted. Jesus was baptized in that very same area in the Jordan River, and the sky parted. And that is, that is the, the very bottom of the Jordan River. There is there by Jericho where it dumps into the Dead Sea. The beginning of the Jordan River is here at Mount Hermon. So you've got all this, even geography is screaming the, the importance of this conversation. Luke tells us that Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about his departure. The Greek word there is his exodus, which is a wonderful little literary twist with Moses standing there. About his death, he is in his glorious state talking about his death. And Peter and John hear it. And Peter tries to dissuade Jesus once again and says, we don't need to be talking. He doesn't say this, but I'm assuming this is what he means, because he says, let's build tabernacles. Why in the world would Peter say that? He said that because in Zechariah, we're told that in the kingdom, the Messiah would be worshipped by the world. The world would be required to come to Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths annually. And Peter's saying, you know what? You're in your glory. Here's Moses and Elijah. Let's just get things rolling with the kingdom. I'll set up the tabernacles. Let's get the kingdom happening. They're talking about his death. Once again, Peter is pushing for the kingdom. And so God the Father steps in this time and basically tells Peter, this would be a good time to listen instead of talk. What did Jesus said? Jesus said, what's for now is a life that puts Christ's concern ahead of self. And here's the second principle. What's for later is a peaceful eternity in the glory of Christ. A peaceful eternity in the glory of Christ. The purpose of the transfiguration was not just an opportunity for Moses and Elijah to talk to Jesus um, on earth. It was to show the disciples who had just had the rug jerked out from underneath them about Jesus' death, that Jesus really is who he says he is. It gives them insight and encouragement. These disciples had been so crushed 
by the promise of Jesus' death, Jesus encourages them by showing them a glimpse of the future. We need that same encouragement, don't we? The transfiguration isn't here in the Gospel of Mark and in Matthew just for the disciples. It's for there for us. It's a glimpse of our future. Christ has called you to pick up a cross. And it's hard work denying yourself, picking up your cross and following Christ. That is a tough calling. We can only do it as long as we see what's coming. To have that transfiguration in our mind, the glimpse of the glory that is ahead of us. We're told that Jesus even used this bit of encouragement uh, for himself, that Christ, for the glory set before him, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He was looking forward to what was coming, which enabled him to endure what was coming. Look at verse 9, just a few more verses here. Chapter 9, verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah indeed has come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Don't say anything, Jesus says, until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. The disciples say, well, wonder what he means by rising from the dead. He couldn't really re mean rising from the dead because that would mean that he died, and we, we don't go for that. So what does he mean, rising from the dead? And instead of asking, what do you mean by rising from the dead? Instead, they go back to the kingdom. Why must Elijah come first, in other words, before the kingdom? That's what they were asking. Because, and by the way, we just saw Elijah. Can we tell everybody that Elijah's come? Can we get the kingdom rolling? Elijah, Jesus says, is not the Elijah you just saw, but he doesn't say it here, but in the other Gospels and putting those together, uh, we're, uh, we're to understand that this is referring to John the Baptist. And incidentally, John the Baptist was killed, which speaks also of what's going to happen to Jesus. So rising from the dead means rising from the dead. God was concerned first with them getting their sins forgiven and then the kingdom coming. If you think about it, why in the world, what was Peter's reaction to uh, seeing Jesus in his glory? They hit the ground in a coil of terror. Is that how you want to live forever? Why did they, live that? Why did they react that way? That's how we all react in the face of God's glory. When we stand in, in the presence of God's glory as sinners, every person throughout Scripture hits the ground in fear. Even Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, when he's in the presence of God. So you wouldn't want to live forever in that state. And Jesus knew that. The Father knew that. And so Christ's first priority is to come as Savior and then to come as King.
Never forget that the cross reveals our expectations. That's a great principle if you want to think about a great way to apply this. The cross reveals your expectations. What do you expect out of life? The cross reveals what you expect out of life. The cross that Jesus gives you reveals it. It was true in the life of the apostles, and it's true of your life. We instinctively reject it. The apostle Paul said this, 2 Corinthians 5.15, Christ died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. There was a 30-year-old single mother named Janelle McMillan. She'd only been uh, on the job as a Port Authority clerk for nine months when the airplanes hit the World Trade Center. She was in the North Tower when it collapsed, and she said that her head was pinned between two pieces of concrete, her legs sandwiched by pieces of a stairway, and her toes had gone numb. Her right hand was pinned under her leg. Only her left hand was free. She said she thought about her daughter, and she prayed that at least her body would be found so that they could bury her. She changed her prayer and revised and asked the Lord that if she had to die, that at least she could make it to the hospital so she could see her daughter before she died. And then she changed her prayer again. Finally, she said she prayed, quote, God, please save my life. Give me a second chance. I promise I will change my life and do your will. She said she prayed that prayer over and over. God, save my life. Give me a second chance. I promise I will change my life and do your will. She said she had no idea how many times she repeated that prayer during the hours that passed. And finally, after 27 hours of being trapped, she, the firefighters heard her cry, pulled her out, and she was the last person to be rescued alive from Ground Zero. And I read that story and thought, you know, isn't it interesting that down deep, when life comes right to the edge, we all know the, the bottom line of life, the critical issue is our turning to God and the need that we have to surrender to do His will. You know, we don't have to be pinned underneath all that rubble to make that decision. We can make it right today. We can make it right here, right now. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is what Janelle prayed. This is what we pray. This is what we need to ask God. Lord, save my life. Give me a second chance. I will change my life and do your will. Let's pray. Our Father, today's hardships the cross that we drag can obscure our view of glory. Jesus graciously took these men who had just been told not only that he was going to die, but also that they were to bear a cross. He took these men up on the Mount of Transfiguration and revealed to them a peak at the future. Father, thank you for giving us that same peak, that same view because sometimes the crosses that we bear seem so hard. 
so difficult. In fact, often, honestly, unbearable, unfair, ungodly. But you're sovereign, and you know just how much it takes to bend our wills to bring them back into line. For Janelle, it took a building falling on her. For many of us, uh, life has handed us things just as difficult. And maybe some of us, even today. Would you give us the courage, Father, as Satan, just as he did with Adam and Eve, tempts to get off course, that we quit chasing the carrot on the stick. Give us the courage to get back in line and to decide whatever it is that I need to make a decision today and find out whatever it is, the obedient path, that is what I want to take. Whatever is your will, Father, that's the route I want to take. Give us the courage, Father, to make that decision, to pray that prayer, and to let that be our daily commitment. Looking for the future, for that promise and that glorious day when we also will stand on the, on the glorious mountain with Moses, with Elijah, with Jesus and Peter and all the other saints of old and many of our loved ones who've already gone ahead of us, and that we will be there in your glory and be able to say it was all worth it. Strengthen us today for that purpose, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.